Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As we strive to amplify the voices of Black creative artists, we've been considering movies with themes of racial injustice. During our national reckoning in response to the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Rayshard Brooks, the writings of James Baldwin from decades ago have an eerie contemporary resonance. A film version of Baldwin's masterpiece, If Beale Street Could Talk was released at the end of 2018. Barry Jenkins adapted Baldwin's novel while simultaneously writing his film Moonlight, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture. I spoke with the director in late 2018, just before the film was released. Since our last conversation, Beale Street has gone on to gross more than $20 million and won numerous awards, including an Oscar for Regina King as Best Actress. Here's Barry Jenkins on the origin of the film. It was kind of predetermined when I wrote the script for Moonlight in summer of 2013. Um, on the same writing trip, I actually wrote the script for uh, A Beale Street Talk. I adapted the novel. Uh, then and then spent the next four or five years getting to know the estate, uh, the James Baldwin estate, and just being very clear about you know what the film would be, what my vision was, how I saw it, um, and so those things were already uh, in motion um, in a certain way, and it felt like these two pieces were almost like companion pieces, and even before the Oscars were completed and all those things, it was clear to me that this was going to be uh, my next film. How are they? How do you see them as companion pieces? Um, I think one, you know, because I wrote them in the same trip, so I was definitely in the same headspace um, <laughs> when I initially wrote them. But, but also too, I think they're both, um, you know, these depictions of black life um, and a certain kind of black love. You know, that is not the same in both films, but I think it comes from the same place, from within me at least, my curiosity with those things. Um, and I think in both films, um, both stories, you just see. Uh, these families, very different families, 
um, but just trying to do whatever they can uh, to help their children. And um, and I think it's just purely a matter of circumstance. The circumstances are different in the two stories, um, but I think the, the goal is the same, which is how do we preserve uh, this unit? How do we preserve this black family? Um, and one of them is more turbulent for internal reasons, and the other one is turbulent for reasons that are completely beyond control of the family. The cruel element of the plot is that a young black man is imprisoned for a crime he did not commit. Mm -hmm. There's an evil white cop. Justice seems remote, if attainable at all. Mm -hmm. The story is set in the 1970s, but the situation rings so familiar Mm -hmm. now. In depicting the cruel reality of life for African Americans, do you think James Baldwin wouldn't be at all surprised Um, by the resonance of this story today? I think he would not be surprised. I I, I think that if you you were having a conversation with Mr. Baldwin today and you said, oh my goodness, you know, this, this horrific thing happened in Pittsburgh, and the president said this, and and this thing happened. You know, the country's on fire. You know, the world is on fire. Climate change, all these things. You know, I think he would look at you and kind of crack just a, a little bit, a hint of a smile, and say, uh, but hasn't it always been? You know, it's just that we haven't been paying attention. Um, and so I think that he would not be surprised that so much of the, the things that the characters in this story have to endure um, people like them, you know, who are living today, also continue to endure. Uh, proof positive of that is uh, Stefan James, who plays the main character, Fani. He speaks quite often about doing research and really coalescing around the story of Khalif Browder, you know, which is a story um, that has uh, many similarities with the situation that this character, Fani, finds himself in uh, in this film. Um, and the thing about that is this is in 20... You know, I think the Khalif Browder story began in 2010 or 2011 is when he went through this ordeal. This is from 1974 when there are less cameras, less internet, less access to resources to, you know, to help one, you know, uh, fight these injustices uh, themselves. And then we fast forward 40, 50 years later when we, we should know better and these things are still happening. Um, part of that is because the, the uh, prison industrial complex has now been, you know, even more rap- rapidly uh, profitized, and so there's many other elements at play that this film does not dive into because it is a love story at its heart. Yes, <laughs> um, but it's not; it doesn't shy away from what these characters have to endure. And so, although systems are certainly implicated in a part of the story, Baldwin's prose is exquisite. Beyond the vivid description and insight of the characters, the narration is very reflective. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Moonlight began life as a play. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if the literary beauty of Beale Street, if Baldwin's writerly approach made the novel more difficult for you to adapt as a screenplay. No, and actually to me it made it, um, uh, I don't want to use the word easy because nothing was easy about this process, but... Um, I think it made it more fluid um, in a certain way. I think Mr. Baldwin's writing uh, is evocative, um, like the literal, like the syntax, the way he constructs sentences and the way he compiles ideas into metaphors um, is very visual to me. 
And so it was almost, you know, I feel like with both these films, it's like I'm playing PlayStation or I have a cheat code <laughs> Easter egg or something because, you know, the source material is so rich. Um, and I think with Terrell, there was a certain kind of richness that lent itself to my kind of visual aesthetic. And I think with this piece, um, as you said, the way Baldwin uh, wrote uh, this novel was so evocative um, that for me it was about, you know, let me not try to alter, you know, uh, the feeling I have, the awe I have in reading these things. Let me just try to translate it um, in a certain way. And it was really lovely because in, in you know, planting a flag that this was going to be a faithful adaptation and we were going to try to preserve the energy of the text, it then allowed me just to completely free up the visual side um, of my mind and then go, what is the most appropriate way to visually take this from this medium and place it into this one? And in fact, you use so much of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I, I would think if the author were alive, he'd be elated. I, I would hope so. I mean, t to me, this film from the very beginning was not about Barry Jenkins. It was about um, James Baldwin, you know, being the first English language adaptation of his work, only the second narrative adaptation of his work um, ever, and coming into the world in a time when people read less and they watch. Um, it was very important to me to preserve the text. And also, the text is damn good. So, oh, so um, there was no reason to, to alter it unnecessarily. Yeah, I, as you can see, I have all of these. This is radio, notes. but I wish you guys could see this. There are sticky notes all throughout this novel. <laughs> well, I'm, as I was reading it in preparation for our discussion, I kept marking places that I thought might have struck you mm. personally, Barry. And I remember when you were here for Moonlight, you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to do that you couldn't recall ever having seen was the simple act of a black man cooking dinner. Mm. In this paragraph, would you read this for me? Sure. I, I, I wondered, because it reminded me so mm -hmm. much of, of Moonlight. I listened to the music and the sounds from the streets and Daddy's hand rested lightly on my hair. And everything seemed connected, the street sounds and Ray's voice and his piano and my daddy's hand and my sister's silhouette and the sounds and the lights coming from the kitchen. It was as though we were a picture, trapped in time. This had been happening for hundreds of years, people sitting in a room, waiting for dinner and listening to the blues. And it was as though out of these elements, this patience, my daddy's touch, the sounds of my mother in the kitchen, the way the light fell, the way the music continued beneath everything, the movement of Ernestine's head as she lit a cigarette, the movement of her hand as she dropped the match into the ashtray, the blurred human voices rising from the street. Out of this rage and a steady, somehow triumphant sorrow, my baby was slowly being formed. I mean, yeah, that's 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 it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's okay. it. And and this is what I mean about the writing being so evocative. You know, there's no dialogue in that sequence. And to be honest, it's like it's not. I always describe literature as being this vessel for interiority. This is interiority, but it's built on concrete images. You know, this is why it was so fluid. You know, I don't want to use the word easy, but why it was so fluid to take this particular novel from this form into this form. This is a love story for the ages. 
Bonnie and Tish is a love story for the ages. Would you talk about the various ways in which love pervades this story? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think Mr. Baldwin was was working at something quite grand uh, and building this novel. I think in a certain way, you know, if you wanted to, you could retitle this novel, you know, The Lives and Souls of Black Folks. Um, because I think in creating a story where there's this systemic injustice that causes such suffering um, and despair, it kind of mirrors to me in a certain way um, the history of black people in America, which is, um, you know, at its foundation and rooted in some some level of, of unjust uh, suffering and despair. And yet, you know, there's always love. There's always been joy, family, community, all these things. Um, and I think that when I first read this novel, one, I saw those two voices presented very clearly um, in this book. You know, the Baldwin that speaks to love, romanticism, joy, and passion. But then the Baldwin that also speaks to um, you know, the heinous injustices that people like myself, you know, people like Mr. Baldwin, uh, people of color in this country have always had to, to endure. Um, and in Tish and Fani, I just found this very, very pure love. You know, uh, legitimately soulmates is how I would describe them. Um, and I hadn't read um, many depictions of young black people um, of the age of these characters who were depicted as soulmates uh, in this way, especially as clearly as they are here. Um, and then going out from that, just to see, uh, I call them these satellite characters, you know, the family units, then presenting a different kind of love, you know, the love between sisters, the love between a mother and a daughter, between a husband and a wife, just all these different, like, arrays of love. It was just very clear to me that that there was a way to present the film that was uh, lush and beautiful in the spirit of that love, but still spoke to the truth of the horrific injustice that these people are having to endure. Um, and for me, as a storyteller, it's the greatest kind of challenge, you know? Um, but I mean great in the sense that it just activates so much, you know, of the process for me. So it was a really wonderful experience. Part of what struck me about James Baldwin's story is that there is no sentimentalizing of Harlem. No, no, there's not. In fact, uh, Tish is disgusted with New York City. Mm -hmm. And um, she talks about the terrible schools mm -hmm. which set up children to fail. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the leitmotif of evil, corrupt police. Baldwin writes, we live in a nation of pigs and murderers, and I don't think America is God's gift to anybody. Baldwin moved to France, but do you think he gave up on America? Um, I don't think so at all. Uh, I think that, I think in a certain way, he removed himself you know, from the everyday condition of um, living in this country at the time that he did, you know, as a, you know, as an out uh, gay man who was a very critical thinker. I think he felt he had to distance himself in order to allow his thoughts, you know, to truly take shape. I mean, I think he returned quite often to always make sure that those thoughts weren't completely detached from the actual condition um, of the country. Um, you know, it's interesting 
um, I think that the book is written from one perspective and the film is made from another perspective. I think this is a really interesting thing that happens as you read the book. You start to realize that James Baldwin is pissed. And so sometimes Tish is pissed. Rightfully. Um, rightfully, exactly. Um, but the film is told from the perspective of Tish. And so even through this anger and bitterness that she feels, um, I think there are also times when um, we present her in just a pure sense that she's just trying to hold on to this love um, of Fani. And so it's interesting because there is a version of the film that is just just all out, just like angry, just angry, angry, angry. Um, but the way we described it was Tish is sort of in purgatory in the story that we're telling in the film. Fani's literally in purgatory. She's also trying to bring this child to term. And so there are moments when, because it's a very nonlinear book and a nonlinear film, we allow ourselves to now I'm gonna gonna run against the current of the novel in a certain way to sentimentalize the life, uh, her life in Harlem, because it's now in the situation she finds herself in in the present day, this is maybe as good as it's gonna get. And so the colors become a bit brighter and more saturated, and the music swells a bit more because she's trying to hold on to this vision of the life they should have. And so it was one of the, the lovelier parts of, again, taking something from one medium into the next, and trying to figure out which interiority will we keep and which interiority will we let go of. And there were times where I had to decide between Mr. Baldwin's interiority and Tish's. Um, and for me, the lushness of Tish's interior life, especially when it's trying to hold on to this thing, was so potent um, that every now and then we seeded the film to her. Director Barry Jenkins talking about his 2018 film, If Beale Street Could Talk. We'll be back with more in just a moment on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. You're listening to City Lights. Let's get back to my conversation with director Barry Jenkins about his movie If Beale Street Could Talk. I asked him about casting the lead roles. Uh, Stefan James and Kiki Lane play our two young leads. Um, you could call them Romeo and Juliet somehow, or maybe the two main characters uh, in Black Orpheus with the gender dynamics uh, switched. Um, to me, they're just these soulmates. And, you know, two young people, you know, in a post, very just like recently post-civil rights uh, America, so many things are new and expanding. And these two characters realize that very quickly they want to live their life together, their entire lives. Um, and then this horrific thing happens. And now that life is being taken away from them. So with Stefan James, who plays the main character, Fonny, we were looking for this vitality. You know, Fonny's the kind of guy who he could very easily, you know, go to vocational school, get a job at a factory, work his way up, nine to five, good to go, get a pension. 
but he's in tune with this other side of himself, with the elements, with the world. He wants to be an artist, and he has this woman, and they want to get married, and he wants to have a kid, and this is going to be the life he, he leads. And so because of the ordeal he's going through, he wanted somebody who had this life force in their eyes, similar to the life force of the, the eyes in the film Moonlight, with the way we cast those guys. But instead of the light coming on, in this film we see the light slowly go away. And Stefan just seemed to have this inner maturity and just this 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 wisdom within him um, that, that that projected all those things. With Kiki Lane, it was the opposite. We're looking for somebody who could speak with two voices. You know, in the film, she's experiencing so many things for the first time. She's like a girl, you know, experiencing everything for the first time. But then in the interior voice, in the voiceover, she's speaking from someone who's evolved, you know, uh, who's learned um, in both good ways and bad from the experiences we see depicted in the film. So Kiki just had this duality that we that we we just were struck by immediately and then putting them together the most important thing was you have to believe these characters are soulmates um and once we saw stefan and kiki together it was very clear that uh they were what do you think baldwin was saying about the role of the black artist you know it's um i have to be uh be frank here in some ways it's a bit of a I don't want to say cynical, but it's a very dark take in a certain way. I think that, again, if Fani does not embrace this this life force within him, which is, I'm going to go against the grain. You know, I'm not going to fall into the assimilation of what a quote-unquote good guy does, which is learn a vocation, get a job, do this thing. It's like, no, I want to walk a different path. You know, I want to sculpt and I want to move into a loft? Like, what, what is, what is, this makes no sense, you know? It's the uh, the path less taken. And I think what, there's an undercurrent in uh, the telling of the story, which is, if you do that, you're, you're exposing yourself. Because when he encounters this cop, the cop can feel that. And this is the thing that when we see this presented uh, in people, if we don't recognize it or if we don't have the courage to embrace it in ourselves, we want to vanquish it. Um, and so I think in a way, it's something that speaks to the idea that to step outside these uh, this normative uh, behavior, normative vocations, um, is to risk everything. But how can you be in touch with your art? How can you create things if you're not risking um, everything or something? Um, so in a way, it's a bit a uh, it's a bit of a dark a dark take. But I also feel like the the way in which this character expresses himself, and I think the way in which these two characters fall in love, is directly in tune with this idea that they do allow themselves to walk a different path. So I think the two go hand in hand. Um, and I think that by the end of the film, that life force is not vanquished, you know, despite the uh, the problems it encounters. The character of Daniel doesn't occupy much time on screen, but his story is searing. Would you talk about Daniel mm-hmm. and the actor who portrays him? Yeah, Daniel Cardi is, again, one of these satellite characters, as I like to describe them. You know, the book is very nonlinear. Pe- non-linear. People come in and out of the narrative as they come in and out of Tish and Fani's story. And Brian Tyree Henry, who plays Paperboy on the show Atlanta, um, also plays this character, Daniel Cardi, um, in our film. And it falls right at the halfway point of the story. It was really important to me to establish Tish and Fani, their life, their love, their families, before introducing their circumstances. And then in the middle of that, you know, Fani is, we have already met him, we know what his ordeal is, but we haven't really seen what the end might be, um, depending on the outcome of this process. 
And then this character, Daniel Cardi, shows up. And what I loved about the character, both in the book and what Brian Tyree Henry does with him in the film, is he shows up and he just has, again, this life force. I think there's this, this notion of life force within black people um, in the book and very much in the film. And when they meet on the streets, like vivacious, cracking jokes, smoke cigarettes, drinking beer. And I think when two black men encounter each other, um, and I assume it's the same with black women, um, the very first thing is, hey, how you doing? The answer is always, I'm good. But then if you continue the conversation, it's like, I'm good, and then it's, I'm good, but... And then eventually, maybe you get to the point where it's, I'm actually not good. And so I wanted to build a sequence where you saw these two characters encounter each other, and that starts off with, I'm good. But then because Daniel's been through a, a, a situation that Fonny's potentially going to go through, over the course of this day, they both get to the point where they're vulnerable enough to, to reveal themselves. And you see that Daniel Cardi, it's not good. And you see the effects um, of the systemic injustice and mass incarceration and just so many things that are brutally unfair uh, and manipulative about the criminal justice system. You see the effect it has on actual lives um, as exhibited through Brian as his character. Oh, um, my jaw dropped. But I felt that way at so many points mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. Your cast is astonishing. I mean... Regina King is the mother. This yeah. this is the mother for all ages. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you adapt a novel, oftentimes, you know, it takes like 20 hours to read this book. It takes two hours to watch the film. So you can't keep everything from the book in the film. But I had just a deep reverence for the source material and all the cast it as well. So I think what you're watching when you see this film and the performance is um, are the full weight of the novel, all the interiority of the text is in the performance, even if some of the scenes from the novel haven't translated directly to uh, the screen. And so I think Brian brought just wells of experience and emotion from the text into his scene work, Kiki and Stefan the same, uh, and Regina as well. I think it's just a lovely example of the spirit of the source material manifesting itself um, in the actors. Beale Street is in Memphis and invokes the richness of the blues. Mm -hmm. In the opening of the film, you display James Baldwin's quote that essentially says Beale Street is a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Would you unpack the metaphor? Yeah, I think that the, the simplest way I, I can unpack it is by s- describing these two films as companion pieces, Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk. If Bill Street Could Talk or If Bill Street Wore a Street in Miami, it would tell the story of Moonlight, you know? If Bill Street wore a street in South Central, it would tell the story of um, of of Minnesota society. You know, it would tell the story of straight out of Compton. You know, um, if it were a street in, you know, it's just any place that I feel like that that Black people have found a way to build an enclave, have lived lives. I think those places um, can somehow speak to, like I said in the very top, the lives and souls of Black folk. Um, I think this this book really for Mr. Baldwin was just almost like a, a thesis statement, you know, on what it's like to be black in America. And I think that experience, even when it's it's cast in these very uh, far flung flung uh, places, at the root, at the foundation, there's this core experience um, that I think we can all sort of um, sort of share in a certain way. Um, and it's interesting because when I first read the book, I kept waiting for it to, like, Sharon's going to move to Memphis or, you know, yes. Kiki's going to move, so, you know, Tish is going to move to Memphis. And then it wasn't until like two months before releasing the film that we found um, this quote. 
um, which was, I think, uh, connected to the German release, the original German release of the novel, uh, way back in the 70s. And it just, it just, it just so very clearly, so very clearly brought everything together. And I think it's why, you know, a kid who grew up in Miami, Florida could see himself, you know, in the story. It's the origin story. Yes, ma'am. It's such a gut-wrenching story, heartbreaking Mm -hmm. at so many different points. Yet your film imparts something more hopeful than Baldwin's novel. Or is Beale Street uplifting after all? Um, I think it is. I think it has to be. I mean, there are days, and we're all experiencing this right now, you know, there were days and moments when you wonder, you know, why am I getting out of bed today? You know, why am I going to work today? Why am I doing this interview today? Um, and I think most of us reach the other point, the other side of that question, where we just realize we have to, you know, and we have to do whatever we can to create hope, to create love. Um, and especially, you know, this is Monday morning, and it was a very, very long and dark weekend. You know, I think we have to just continue to... Uh, create energy through our work, you know, that is sustaining, you know, and not debilitating. And so I do think that taking the energy of this novel, which I think is very pure uh, and very honest, um, I think in the repurposing of it and the celebration of it and the the celebration of him, uh, it organically became um, uh, a product or an end result um, that is filtered through the prism of hope. Very. I loved that the first American screening was at the Apollo. Yes. Oh my goodness. What was that like? It was. Um, it was beyond emotional. You know, the the Baldwin family was there and spoke before the screening. And you know, when you when you make a film, you know, like Moonlight never had a screening like that because there literally is not a theater, you know, in the neighborhood where Moonlight uh, takes place. So to be able to walk into basically a shrine, you know, to Black culture. Um, that is situated literally a five-minute walk from where we made the film, you know, a five-minute drive from where Mr. Baldwin was born. There was just so much about it that went beyond, you know, the craft or the presentation, you know, beyond the technical aspects of it. It was just pure emotion. And very rarely does a film have that opportunity. And so it was just... um, yeah, it was amazing. Did you dine at the Red Rooster? Uh, I, I did, and we actually had the after party at the Red Rooster. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, love I mean, how 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 much more on brand can you be? You know, <laughs> at at some point, you gotta just just see, you know, and just accept that this is the right thing. Oscar-winning director Barry Jenkins, his film "If Beale Street Could Talk," is streaming on Amazon Prime and Hulu. In a moment, we'll hear from Coleman Domingo, the actor who played the role of Joseph Rivers in Beale Street. This is WABE Atlanta. 2019 marked the centennial of Nat King Cole, one of the most influential American musicians of the 20th century. Actor, director, and playwright Coleman Domingo co-wrote a musical about Cole called Lights Out, Nat King Cole, starring Dulé Hill in the title role. 
Domingo describes the play as a grenade wrapped in a sheet cake. I spoke with him last year from NPR West about creating this show. what you are I discovered Nat King Cole I'm sure like many of us did um, through his Christmas album and because that was always played it's just tradition in our house mm-hmm. and it wasn't Christmas unless we heard chestnuts roasting on an open fire chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. And then um, I'm sure as, as I grew up and then discovered more and as I started to get my own appreciation for music and jazz and standards that I sort of stumbled upon Nat King Cole and his wealth of uh, styles of music. Um, so that's when I started to discover him, but I didn't know a lot about him except his music. Um, and then I would find out certain things here and there, like how he dealt with race and, um, you know, uh, being discriminated against. But he always held his head high and he was very graceful and gracious. And he was not a rabble rouser in any way. He was very much his act was an act of quiet revolution by just being elegant and graceful and articulate and um, sort of combating tropes that were uh, the usual imagery of African-Americans of his time. Yes. So. I went down the rabbit hole by, uh, this is, it was actually um, suggested to me by Zach Berkman, who was the Associate Artistic Director at People's Light and Theater Company in Philadelphia. And he, he said to me just over a casual lunch, you know, there should be a musical about Nat King Cole. My dad is so fascinated with him and with his television show that he had and all that he represented. And I thought, hmm, well, let me do some research on it and see if there's a, there's a story there. And then I went down the rabbit hole of looking at his um, his television series in 1957, and then I found out why it ultimately wasn't a success. It was a successful show by many uh, means in terms of having the highest quality of performers on it, having um, you know a, a host who was just phenomenal. Except the only thing, the shortcoming was it could never find a national sponsor, and so. NBC, his producers, and he himself, they were hemorrhaging money, but they knew they wanted it to last as long as it could because that itself was an act of revolution in itself, knowing that if it wasn't for Nat King Cole, there would not be the many that followed him. So he knew that that was what he had to do. And I discovered in an, um, an article in 1958, uh, Ebony Magazine, how he truly felt. And I saw the fire that was underneath all that grace. And I wanted to explore that and uh, creating a a theatrical exploration of Nat King Cole. And this is what became Lights Out. This is what is Lights Out. What can you tell us about the production? I can tell you that I think the way me and my collaborator, Patricia McGregor, have described it in private is that it's a grenade wrapped in a sheet cake. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) So it's all the beautiful 
things that you love about a gorgeous sheet cake and it's sugary and sweet and you know it evokes feelings of goodwill and of sort of the American dream and sort of Americana and all that we are. And so we invite you in and then we sort of pull the rug out from under you because to know the reality of Nat King Cole was anything but easy. We keep such a a pure sense of him in our hearts and what he represented and also what we all think about the 50s as well. I was walking along, minding my business, when out of an orange-colored sky, flash, bam, alakazam, wonderful you came by. I was humming a tune, drinking in sunshine, when out of that orange-colored sky. But we also understand that 50s were not easy for African-Americans or, you know, or women or, you know, many others. And so we wanted to examine that. So we sort of get the audience comfortable, and then we pull the rug out underneath you. And it's at some point we sort of ask the question, what will you do with this, this information now that you know what's behind the songs, what's in between the melodies, um, underneath this, this great legendary man? Now, what is your responsibility? How complicit are you in, in, in sort of keeping up this ideal of the American dream? Um, and then it's like, what are you going to do now? So it really is looking at it with the lens of 2019. There are things that we absolutely try to echo. We try to echo, you know, we have a young, at some point we have a young boy being shot, which is indicative of the things that are happening right now and the atrocities towards African-American men. We have things, we have a moment, which is one of my favorite moments, where Peggy Lee holds Nat's hands and say, we're in this together, we're in this fight. In my mind, that's always the fight of, of, of gender as well as disenfranchised people. You know, you know what I mean? So I think I'm trying to really bridge and really look at, examine who we are, uh, where we've been, and where we're going. Uh, Nat King Cole was determined to break down TV's race barrier yes. and lights out deals with his last TV show. Yes. Nat always appeared elegant, and he seemed the embodiment of calm. Yes. What do you imagine was beneath the ease he conveyed to audiences? I'll be very honest. I think um, Tom Stoppard said it best. He said that, you know, artists are usually interested in the same questions again and again. And the more we raise those questions, you can really hear the playwright's voice and what they're concerned about. With this exploration, I was even looking at myself and how grace is a choice, always, hmm. because you're always met with things that will, you know, whether it's microaggressions and things that will, you know, unhinge you in some way being an artist in this industry. And I wanted to examine Nat King Cole 15 minutes to places on the last evening of his uh, television show that he gave so much to. And I wanted to take you on sort of a fever dream or, or a dark night of the soul. But basically, it's those 15 minutes of what any artist, what, this, what are they thinking about? Um, what is this? What did this all mean? Uh, what did you sacrifice? Did you do all the things you were supposed to do? So it takes place in my mind. It takes place within 15 minutes. But of course, the show is about 90 minutes. But it is a dark exploration of the soul. It unearths things that possibly he was thinking about or concerned about or had questions about. And then I also invited Sammy Davis Jr. to so that I, in research, found that he was a, a such a comrade and a friend of his. But they sort of approach things in a very different way. So we have Patricia and I designed uh, Sammy Davis Jr. to be the provocateur mm -hmm. that sort of tries to pull out what's underneath all that grace. 
and uh, and really get him to speak his truth, not just be that calm, um, elevated self, but sometimes to to say that rage is okay, to use those dark notes, to go there. It's okay at times. Sometimes you can't always hold your head up high. Yeah. Sometimes you can't, sometimes, you know, as what Michelle Obama would say, sometimes you as I always say, we go high. Sometimes you can't go high. You Sometimes you've got to get in the mud. Hmm. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I make. I, I think that I, the questions that I have, how far do you go? Um, when do you do it? Um, when is it, when it is, when is it absolutely necessary? Maybe this is also something I'm thinking about as a 50 year old man in this industry about how I, once you have a platform, how do you use it? And I have a, a great platform. I have a I have a huge microphone now as an artist, and I want to be very clear. How am I using How am I using it? How is it my act of revolution? I'm not someone that naturally, like Nat King Cole, doesn't march um, uh, in the streets. I'm not, you know, raising my fists in that way. I use my pen, and Nat King Cole used his his music, you know, to to promote change and to, to break down color barriers, et cetera. And so I think that we have very similar um, ways of being. And I think that um, it's a convergence of that. It's not only myself, uh, it's not only Nat King Cole, but it's, it's myself who stands on the shoulders of Nat King Cole. Why was Sammy Davis an unlikely friend for Cole? I think, you know, I think that they were... They approach things in a very different way, in very radically different ways. I think, uh, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., he went in very different circles as well. But they were still comrades. And so I think that's what I'm exploring as well. The fact that maybe we, we go about it in a different way as artists. Underneath, there's something that's so similar and that there is a brotherhood there, you know, of people who are trying to be the firsts to to do what hasn't been done before. And, and um, there are huge stakes for that. You know, for Sammy Davis Jr., he suffered immensely for some of the choices he made as well. But he was radical in that way. Being a, uh, a man, you know, who, who was Jewish, an African-American who was Jewish and Puerto Rican. And also, you know, at times he's, he supported, you know, he performed for, you know, Nixon and things like that. You know what I mean? Which he got flack with, you know. And then he suffered this tremendous remorse after yes. he had some of these impulsive displays. Absolutely, of because it's always you know it's always raising the question. People think that you know we're a monolith, and to actually like smash those tropes and say we're so diverse in the way that we go about it. And each time you know someone steps outside and do something else, people question your your blackness. They question your you know your 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 political uh, affiliation, they question everything when you're doing something that you're just trying to be honest to your own experience. Hmm. Coleman, what do you think was the impact of Nat King Cole's show on the African-American community? I think it was extraordinary to turn on the television at that time and to see someone that represented you. And I think to sort of quote Hattie McDaniel, it's sort of like how to be... Um, quote-unquote, a credit to your race. That was what the sort of the, the phrase was, whatever that means. But I think that it was actually, I knew that Nat King Cole understood that it was important for uh, for he to be on the air and for it to, and for it to be as, as long as he did. He was going to try to get to that year mark as, as sure as possible without a national sponsor. And that also came with costs. I mean, if, you, if anyone researches the Nat King Cole show and even look at some imagery, you would see that the man was... Uh, powdered up, his face was powdered to become lighter to so that we can make 
so that he could make uh, audiences more comfortable. And that was something that was so striking. And I know there was, there was some contention. People were like, did he get powdered up or was that the lighting and camera? I'm like, no, no, no. He was actually darker than me. I'm, I'm a dark-skinned man. He was my complexion or darker. And there's some images, images where he's so fair it is, um, it's unbelievable. So you, you try to, so for my money, I want to examine that because I'm sure that I know that going against someone's self and powdering someone up, not so they can look good, but so they can be appealing to Southern audiences. I'm sure that had to take a toll. That's something that's an agreement that you have to make for your show to exist, for mm. you to exist. And, and I'm sure that that's, some, that's something very personal. That's your skin. So I wanted to examine that, that people think that, oh, maybe that was fine. No one is fine with that. I don't care how much grace. I'm sure there's a cost in some way. I'm sure at some point you will look in the mirror and you understand exactly where you are and what you have to do for this work to happen. So that is an act of revolution as well, to know that, that it takes enormous strength to do work like that, to, to, um, to I don't know, people to almost disavow what you look like and, 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 and not just uphold your talent in all that you do. Oh, it, it's shocking to think about that. Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark, mm-hmm. was Nat's famous comment about the absence of a sponsor for his show. Um, you mentioned a bit earlier the audience size was fantastic by Madison Avenue standards. And the popular support NBC received in the form of letters. I mean, 10,000 plus letters. Nat's remark about Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. That was a very clear statement. And that's the one that I hung on to when I realized that there was more beneath the mask of Nat King Cole. And and that became part of a national conversation. Yes, absolutely. Because he understood very well. He understood. He really laid it out um, in every single way, in this 1958 Ebony Magazine article, where he said Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark, and at the end of the day, that is why his show didn't succeed, because there was no other. Because of the amount of talent, the amount of, I mean, they, the show. You and you can look at it some episodes <laughs> on YouTube. It is a phenomenal show. It's so well done, uh, by comparison to any host, and with with top notch talent like Peggy Lee and Eartha Kitt and Sammy Davis Jr. and, you know, Betty Hutton, you name it, um, Billy Preston. And yet it could not get a national sponsor. They were, no matter what, advertisers were afraid of the pull of the South to disrupt what Southern homes would watch. They were so afraid that they would rather not sponsor. It's just mind-boggling to me because the biggest names in showbiz were thrilled to appear on his show and they waived their Their fees. fees. I mean, we're talking Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, their respect for Cole. That wasn't enough to engage a sponsor. Why did Southern audiences factor so prominently? Well, it's it's, it's something that it's a question I'm raising because I think it's still happening. I still think that people, no matter what it is artistically, that it, there's always the advertisers, the financiers. You have to make them believe that it's going to make money, no matter what. It's a lot of times when I'm I find that I'm pitching projects, etc. I think that you they're always questioning. They would rather just have something that they know will appeal appeal to broad audiences. At the end of the day, it's the almighty dollar. And I think instead of someone taking a risk to say 
I think that they will enjoy this to trust that to not. But also it's like the idea that the South had that much pull and it did, you know, that the people would decide not to buy. And I think at the end of the day, that's the question I'm raising. You know, where do you, you know, where do you put your affinity towards? You know, you, you know what I mean? I'd like, if you're going to make a statement, make a statement, get behind this artist and be fully behind it. But at the end of the day, they were concerned about their sales. So Jackie Robinson's name was mentioned in comparison to what Nat faced breaking into television. Yes, uh, very much so. I think that he was, he was the first in many ways. And with the first, there's a lot of, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of prices you pay. Also with Nat King Cole, as we know, nothing was very easy. You know, I, I was saying before, like, people po- poisoned his, the, fa- the family dog, oh. burned a, a cross on his lawn. And this is not in the South. This is in Los Angeles. That's what I always wanted to make clear as well, that the things that I'm, I'm sort of like investigating, you know, it's easy to say, oh, they tried to pull him off a stage in, in Alabama. But when you say there was a cross burned in Hancock Park in Los Angeles, to understand that, that um, like he also famously said, that he also said, Southerners are not all in the South. Hmm. You know, so it's like, and also I sort of, I, to be very honest, I know in this um, exploration, I tried to also uh, put, you know, I'm very much a liberal. And I, I think I put liberals to task as well, that sometimes we have no idea as we go shoulder to shoulder with each other, that sometimes there's still things deeply seated in our consciousness, the sort of upend when it comes to power or having a voice or, you know, you know what I mean? I feel like, so I, I think it's a great, what I'm trying to do is really explore our relationships um, in America and in our consciousness and how much we, um, we, we feel complicit or irresponsible. It's very ambitious of you. Thank you. Are there particular songs in the show or particular moments that you think are key elements of what you want the audience to take away? Yes, I do. One of my favorite numbers is um, it's the centerpiece of the show. And it's when Nat's producer, who in my mind, he's sort of a representation of Hollywood or the system, he says to Nat, you know, he's just, he's really frustrated with Nat because Nat, he doesn't want like Bob Hope to take over, you know, to come in and host or something. And then he gets into this huge confrontation. And, um, and it's all still based on uh, a terrible review that he's, you know, uh, you know, the, whatever the periodical where he's reading in the beginning of the show that where it talks about how his show um, is going into demise. And then, so he says, you know, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe that it came from you and, But there's rage underneath those words. It's not, I'm gonna smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. No, he sings it with rage, the way Dulé Hill performs it he gets all the bite that's in that song. So it really changes what you think about that song. And then it moves into a me and my shadow number. And it's a a depth-defying tap number that is between Daniel J. Watts, who plays Sammy Davis Jr., and Dooley Hill, who plays Nat King Cole.
Sammy Davis is trying to get Nat King Cole to go to the darker side, to let what's in his body out. And the only way sometimes that one can let it out is through tap. And that's also a history of tap with African-Americans and what tap represents, whether it's also calling on the Middle Passage, whether it's calling on the history of our people. But it goes to a deep, dark, raw space. And they have this tap number. And then it pulls itself out of me and my shadow back to write myself a letter. That's it. Let's go. It's one of my favorite moments, and it's so significant of many things, um, really uh, pretty much the history of African-Americans in America. Actor, director, and playwright Coleman Domingo talking about his musical Lights Out, Nat King Cole. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about Chattahoochee Riverkeeper's annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash City Lights. And the City Lights podcast is available now on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other platforms. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.